Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marcellaro, and this week my guest is Professor of Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines, Dr. George Sowers. George, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to have you on the show. I've been reading about you, and our careers are very parallel. And um, so uh, just for the listeners, I want to give you a brief introduction. You began your academic career in geologic engineering, but eventually switched to physics. Your undergraduate degree is in physics from Georgia Tech. And later you went on to your PhD in physics at the University of Colorado in quantum field theory. Over the last 30 years, you've worked for Martin Marietta, which became Lockheed Martin, and then worked for the United Launch Alliance. You were the chief scientist and vice president at the ULA. And currently, you are a professor of space resources at the Colorado School of Mines. So tell me, your earliest interest was, as I said, in geologic engineering. How did that come to happen? So that was an early attempt to somewhat follow in my father's footsteps. My father was a civil engineer with an emphasis in soil mechanics uh, and professor at Georgia Tech. And, And it took me a year or two to find out that geology was interesting, but not something I wanted to spend my career at. So geological engineering is something that has cropped up recently in your studies of mining the moon. We'll get to that in the second half of the show. Um, So then what triggered your interest in physics? So I always had a, a, a desire to understand the world at the deepest level. Um, when I was doing the core courses for my, uh, the geologic engineering degree, I, I never got, um, physics was the subject that piqued my interest the most. And so uh, when I switched majors, I decided to, that physics was the thing for me. There's a certain elegance and simplicity and mathematical beauty in physics, especially yeah, Maxwell's and, equations and, and, and equations of motion. And It's just very alluring because of its exactness and precision and predictability, ability to predict. Yeah, that's, that's right. And... and you know, my my desire was to understand the world as best I could uh, at the most fundamental level, and and the only way to do that is is physics. Uh, but that also has spurred an interest in philosophy, and uh, I've enjoyed pursuing philosophy as a hobby um, while you know learning the intricacies of physics uh, through my PhD. Were you a science fiction reader? When you're, Absolutely. When you're Who were avid, some of your favorite authors? I have avidly read, you know, most of the classics. Um, I like hard science fiction. I also enjoy fantasy. Um, you know, as a as a teenager, I read Heinlein and Asimov. Oh, yeah, Heinlein. And, and uh, the dean of science fiction. I love yeah, Heinlein. Of course. And, uh, you know, lately I've actually become friends with uh, the guy that manages the Heinlein Trust. Oh, because really? They, yeah, they give out a, an annual prize um, to uh, commercial space, people that have made uh, contributions in the commercial space field. Interesting. I didn't know there was a Heinlein Trust or foundation. Yeah. Cool. He never really got very wealthy writing science fiction, so it must be a modest fund. <laughs> I guess I don't know the the dollar value, but you know they give out a hundred thousand dollar prize every year, every other year. Cool, must have been the royalties building up. Yep. Mm. 
So um, then you joined um, Martin Marietta about the time I did. What did you do when you first started at Martin Marietta? So I had done a stint in between my undergraduate and my graduate of a couple of years at Martin Marietta. I worked on the Titan uh, rocket program, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I became enamored with, with space launch, um, although when I left Martin Marietta to go get my Ph.D., I did not expect to come back. But after spending five years in the academic world, um, I, did, I realized that launching rockets was was an awful lot of fun and uh i went back i read i think i read in your bio that you worked on equations of motion celestial mechanics for the for the rocket launch yeah i did the my first job was uh doing trajectory analysis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, using you know pretty sophisticated simulation programs to to uh design the trajectory of the rocket to get to the proper orbit in space so yeah, I, you know, one of one of the things that uh, was very useful with a physics degree is that essentially any engineering field um, I, I, I could do. Um, I had the with a little bit of study on the particulars. I had the math and and physics background to pretty much pick up anything. And of course, the physicists do it better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and of course, you know, trajectory analysis is, is all, all Newtonian physics, um, right. F equals MA and solving those equations in motion and, and, uh, <clears throat> integrating the, you know, the, the equations of motion to get to the proper orbit. But then there came a time when you decided you wanted to explore, as you said, uh, physics more deeply. So you left Martin Marietta to work on your PhD. That's correct. But like I said, after five years in 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 the academic world, getting my PhD, um, I realized that uh, an academic career was not for me. That uh, I needed to do something with my with my knowledge and and talents and and launching spacecraft into into orbit uh, it is a tremendous amount of fun. So you didn't have to pursue the normal track of doing a postdoc in an academic career. Was was there a job waiting for you at Lockheed Martin after you got your doctorate? Was that sort of understood with your managers? Uh, Just curious. No, actually, no. But uh, that when I left, I had not intended to return. Um, but after getting my PhD, I called up my old boss and mm -hmm. he hired me right there. So <laughs> cool. Nice to have connections. Yes. So how long were you at Lockheed Martin, and how did that lead to the United Launch Alliance? I mean, we have to explain that to the listeners. I, I, in the short version, I think because Martin Marietta and Lockheed Martin were building military launch vehicles, there came a time when they realized they had to do commercial space, commercial launch vehicles, and they created this alliance. Is that right? So uh, it's kind of the opposite, actually. Um, both, both Boeing and Lockheed had... Uh, had developed launch vehicles to support the Air Force's expendable launch vehicle uh, program called EELV. Um, Lockheed developed the Atlas V rocket. Boeing developed the Delta IV rocket. Um, unfortunately, the program was initially planned by the Air Force to be a winner-take-all, and the two companies invested um, on that basis. Um, a few years later, when there were thoughts that uh, there was going to be a large commercial launch market, um, the Air Force decided to maintain two 
suppliers. And of course, the business case for being one of two is not anywhere near as being good as it was for being winner take all. Um, so what the Air Force ended up with was two contractors, Boeing and Lockheed, that had money losing launch businesses. Mm. And so there were threats of one or the other of Boeing and Lockheed exiting the business. Um, the Air Force really liked the, the notion of having two suppliers that gave them what they called assured access to space, which means if you know one launch vehicle had a failure, then you know the national security space assets could still make it into space with the other one. And so the compromise position was that the companies, Boeing and Lockheed, formed a joint venture that they named United Launch Alliance, and that uh, <clears throat> that was initiated in December of 2006. Does the ULA still exist today? Uh, yes, it does. And um, I, I had been the, uh, the, the chief system engineer for the development of the Atlas V, and therefore... I was essentially required to join the new company um, because of my expertise. In fact, uh, the way it worked was that anybody that was on the Atlas program or the Delta program at the time of the formation uh, was drafted into the new company um, without really uh, a choice. Um, the choice was to either – my choice was, the, was to either leave Lockheed or join the new company. So I joined the new company. And spent 10 years there uh, and retired in uh, about two years ago. Did you think you were going to stay retired? Well, that, that's an interesting story, and it gets me into my, my current interest. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, my last few years at United Launch Alliance, I was the chief scientist and vice president of advanced programs. Uh, my team and I had developed a you know vision for the commercialization of what's called cislunar space. That's the, the Earth-Moon system considered as, a, as, a, as an entity. Um, and one of the things that underpins uh, economic activity in space are resources in space. And so I became interested in space resources, uh, and in particular, finding a source of fuel for ULA's upper stages, because once you launch a rocket into space, you have a stage that's in space that could be used again um, if you could refuel it. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. So where yeah, do you, so get, we the, developed where the do you get the fuel? <laughs> Go ahead. Where do you get that? I want to ask you about that. So I was reading about your initiative uh, for propellant mined, refined, and distributed in space. What is the propellant and where do you get it? So, you know, today's rockets use a number of different types of, of propellant mixes. Um, you know, the today's rockets uh, use chemical propellants, and so you're essentially combusting a fuel and an oxidizer. The oxidizer, yeah, the oxidizer is typically you know liquid oxygen. Right. Uh, kerosene is a typical fuel used. Um, by both the Atlas rocket for its first stage and SpaceX's rockets, um, but also a very typical fuel that's used is is hydrogen, liquid hydrogen. What are the trade-offs? I've always been curious about that. I've lost yeah, track. So, why, why would ones use you know the Saturn V used kerosene, but we we tend to think of liquid used, hydrogen. It also for for the upper stages, it also used hydrogen. What what, what is the trade-off there? Why does one choose kerosene for one stage and liquid hydrogen for upper stages? 
So it gets into a little bit of rocket design, but uh, rocket engines have a property called specific impulse, which essentially is a measure of how efficient the uh, <clears throat> the burning of the fuel is. Um, and the most efficient chemical propellant known is the combination of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, hydrogen, liquid hydrogen, is very low density. And so liquid hydrogen stages have to have large volumes to carry the same amount of mass of fuel. Um, kerosene, on the other hand, is much higher density, so you can get away with, uh, with <clears throat> lower volume stages. And uh, for the first stage of a multi-stage rocket, uh, the specific impulse is less important than thrust um, because what you're trying to do initially is overcome gravity. And so high thrust, so you can get a high thrust to weight of the, of the rocket stage, is a, is a critical parameter. Once you're out in space, then thrust is not nearly as important, and, and so you go for efficiency. And so, you know, that, that's one of the things that drives the, the Atlas to be, first stage to be kerosene-fueled, and the second stage to be uh, hydrogen-fueled. Okay, so return from subroutine. So now you've got this upper stage that's in space and it could be refueled. How, how do you get, how do you refuel it? So, you know, the first thing, the first step is, is to have a source of fuel in space. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you could launch that fuel from Earth. And there are benefits to doing that. So, you know, to take that as, a, as the first scenario, you could launch one rocket with a tanker as a, its payload. Um, you know, it's basically a big tank full of propellants. And then you can launch another rocket that has, you know, sort of the, uh, the real payload. And those two rendezvous in an Earth orbit. And the, uh, the real payload upper stage is refueled from the tanker. Okay. It's a little bit analogous to, you know, how, you, how the military does operations with uh, <clears throat> fighter jets and, and tanker airplanes where you have the tanker yeah. that rendezvous with the fighter jet, you know, okay. someplace okay. Um, and transfers of fuel. Okay. I had this fantasy about digging liquid hydrogen out of thin air, <laughs> out of thin space. I was wondering what you were talking about there. Cool. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, well, so, 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 when, so when I left ULA... Um, I had uh, had an interest in space resources. I also had uh, you know made some some connections at the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, the The Colorado School of Mines has had a center for space resources um, for about two decades, and uh, the director of that center approached me within days of my leaving ULA. And asked if I wanted to join the program. They were getting ready to announce the the, uh, the the startup of a new graduate program in space resources, and so uh, that was a great way for me to you know not only get back um, at the end of my career, but also help pioneer a new field and train you know the first you know, entrepreneurs and scientists and engineers in this new field of space resources. Cool, cool. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for the first half of the show. In the second half of the show, I want to ask you about your physics understanding and some little bit about quantum mechanics and general relativity and philosophy and your books. 
in your writings. But first, we have to take a short commercial break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with Dr. George Sowers. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI slash CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and backup your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash bgm. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Professor of Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines, Dr. George Sowers. George, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on general relativity because it's something we have in common. Um, your bio says it's a beautiful example of a physical theory, mathematical, ge- geometrical elegance. And then later you studied quantum mechanics. Compare those two and contrast them for us because one gives you a great sense of confidence and one gives you a great sense of scary uneasiness. <laughs> that, I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I spent a lot of time learning about general relativity in grad school. And I spent a lot of time learning about quantum mechanics in grad school. And at the time, this was back in the mid-80s, mid uh, it was just the beginnings of the movement into string theory. And uh, you know, my, my, my real desire was to try and understand enough about both quantum mechanics and general relativity to gain some insight into how they may might one day be reconciled and the biggest uh, problem of the century. Yeah. And, or, you know, it's now into its second century, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, my, my preference from a theoretical standpoint was always with general relativity. I felt it was, you know, an incredibly elegant, uh, theory. Um, it, you know, had beautiful mathematics, but it also was made intuitive sense uh, that gravity could be understand as a artifact, if you will, of geometry um, when understood properly. On the other hand, quantum mechanics is something that you know when when physics students are first exposed to, uh, that makes no intuitive sense. Exactly. You know, in some of my in some of my philosophical work, you know, I've I've characterized you know the power of a scientific theory as having two dimensions. One is explanatory power, you know, the ability to explain the facts as observed and fit those <clears throat> fit those facts in with everything else that we know. Um, 
the other being predictive power, which is the ability to you know make predictions that that are true. Um, well, quantum, quantum mechanics, in my in yes. my view, yeah, quantum oh. mechanics, in my view, has tremendous predictive power. No one can deny the predictive power. It underpins all of electronics and and so many other aspects of modern technology, right. um, and ex, you know and enables predictions of lots of fundamental phenomena um, in the particle physics world. Um, but the explanatory power is is lacking. It is essentially impossible to integrate uh, the theoretical underpinnings of quantum mechanics with the rest of what we know as humans. The reason I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is because quantum mechanics sort of implies that there has to be an observer in the loop for certain things to happen. And we tend to think as general relativity physicists who, who don't think that way, that the universe exists by itself, continues as a machine running on without our intervention and not necessary for us. But quantum mechanics inserts that element of observation and observation influencing change, which is a bit unsettling. It is. And it, it and it's, it, it's almost a, a, a mixing of, of completely different categories because an observer is a macroscopic object um, that's hard to define in strict physical terms. Um, you know, you get into messy things like biology and consciousness and all this other kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, which are are macro phenomena that are far removed from the microscopic phenomena you're trying to describe with quantum mechanics. And so there's this this disconnect that you have all this elegant mathematical machinery that describes quantum mechanics, but then at the end, to to tie any of that elegant mathematics to something that's real um, that you can measure in an experiment or observe, you have to have this you know this crazy idea of an observer. And you know there's a lot of paradoxes that have that have arisen. Um, in my mind, none of which have been adequately resolved. You know, Schrodinger's cat is probably the most most famous of those. Um, you know, contrast that with general relativity, which to me has tremendous explanatory power in that, you know, you can elegantly summarize, you know, the phenomena of gravity as we know it um, as a, you know, ge- geometrical artifact. It's curvature of you know, Ramanian space or four-dimensional space-time. Um, general relativity also has great predictive power. Um, you know, the predictions of gravitational waves that have been verified, you know, just within the last, what, five or, five or six years um, being one of the examples. Um, predictions of black holes being another one. So, so in, in your studies of the quantum mechanics and its um, human connection... Have you reached any philosophical conclusions that you'd like to share with us? Well, it's, it's you know the puzzle of quantum mechanics and, and you know, how to how to come up with a logically consistent philosophical underpinning. Um, you, you know, is is one of the great outstanding questions in 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 physics, and there's still a a sizable subdiscipline of folks that do, you know, quantum fundamentals. Um, you know, a, a few of the insights that, that, that I have, that have come to me is, 
you know, the you know one one has to do with the nature of probability because you know quantum mechanics is a uh, probabilistic mm-hmm. theory. Uh, it's deterministic until you uh, include the observer, and then it becomes probabilistic. And uh, you know that fact by itself um, has suggested to me that the proper interpretation of probability within quantum mechanics is subjective. Um, you know what people would call the Bayesian interpretation of probability. Um, Whereas I think most quantum fundamentalists and, and physics physicists in general would would say that that you know probability within quantum mechanics is objective in some way that it's a property of the world um, and uh, that that always sat wrong with me. Um, <clears throat> there have been some folks that have tried to pursue the angle of uh, you know, subjective probability in, in quantum mechanics, um, you know, the, the Bayesian interpretations of quantum mechanics. I think those uh, are probably on the right track. Um, but these days, you know, I don't have the, the time or the the expertise to, to make any real contributions myself. Okay. Well, let's move on. That's got kind of geeky there for, for a while. Let's move on to something more fun, space engineering and space mining. Um, is your Sour Space Solutions involved in that? You started a consulting company. Yeah, I did uh, when I retired, and, and that was just a, um, I started up a, a single-person LLC called Sour Space Solutions. That's just to allow my myself to be a consultant um, when I want to be and get paid for it. Um, okay. So I have some, you know, I've done some business with that. Um, most of my work is through Colorado School of Mines these days. Um, I recently won a grant proposal from NASA uh, to look at um, different, what, what we call thermal mining of, uh, of ices in the solar system, which is kind of an interesting technique. When, when you hear the word mining, most people think of, you know, large machines um, <clears throat> creating gigantic open pit mines or, you know, ore cars and, and crowded tunnels and drills and things of that nature. Um, <clears throat> thermal mining essentially just uses heat to sublimate ices and capture the vapor. Do solar concentration? Uh, solar concentrators would be one way to... to, to provide the heat um, in space uh, certainly in the inner solar system <clears throat> solar energy is one you know one energy source that you have in abundance um, that's essentially free um, you could use direct sunlight or you could convert the sunlight into you know microwaves or some other source uh, depending on the exact nature of the of the material that you're trying to work with what are some of the most important natural resources on the moon, and what's to be gained by mining the moon? And, and is it legal, by the way? Does mining the moon violate any space treaties? Uh, so I'll start with what's to be gained. Um, so one of one of the uh, most significant findings of of space science in the last decade or two has been that there's water um, all over the place in the inner solar system, 
And, uh, you know, even though the Apollo missions uh, initially concluded that the moon was dry, desiccated, since then, uh, there have been space missions that have observed uh, indirectly um, water ice at the lunar poles. And water is an amazingly valuable commodity in space. Um, you know, first of all, it's essential for life. So if we're going to have uh, human life in space or other life or agriculture or anything of that nature, we're going to need water in space. Um, secondly, pound for pound, uh, water is one of the best radiation shieldings known. And and overcoming radiation hazard in space is one of the one of the key issues. Um, and how much uh, ice is on the moon? How does it compare to say the Earth's Antarctic? I I don't have that comparison. I can give you a, a pure numbers. Um, I think the latest estimates are the south pole of the moon contains probably on the order of 2 billion metric tons of ice, water ice. And the North Pole has somewhere less than a billion metric tons. But uh, the, the most important use, at least in the near term, of water and space is split it into hydrogen and oxygen, um, which now become the most efficient chemical propellants known. Right. And so that's the source of fuel. And having a source of fuel in space um, allows missions to be done and things to be done in space that are that are not possible um, when you have to bring everything from Earth. You know, imagine if you had to drive your car from, um, you know, I'm in Denver, you know, Denver to Washington D.C. Uh, without gas stations and come home. You know, that was the problem faced by the Apollo missions, where all the fuel that they needed to do the entire mission to get from Earth all the way to the moon and from the moon back to Earth, all that fuel had to be taken with them from the beginning from Earth. And uh, it becomes an exponentially increasing problem. Um, in fact, the uh, the rocket equation is an exponential equation. Um, so the more... The longer you have to go, the more fuel you need, the more fuel you need, the bigger rocket it takes to carry that fuel. So right. now you need more fuel, and so it ends up being a snowballing type effect. It and, takes a uh, huge amount of fuel to lift off the Earth's gravitational well and get to Mars. Is, is NASA thinking about a mission where um, a Mars mission would, would rendezvous in lunar orbit and pick up more fuel? Yes, that, that could save... The cost the the cost of a mission to Mars could be cut by a factor of four or more through the use of fuel um, produced on the moon. Cool. And uh, and and so you know that's one of the main drivers for for going after the fuel as one of the first economically viable commodities. Do you think we'll see anybody on Mars in our lifetime? Any human? Uh, it depends on how old you are. <laughs> My lifetime. <laughs> We're a little uh, older than most. I'm, lo <laughs> I'm losing faith that it's going to happen <laughs> in my lifetime, maybe my kid's lifetime. Well, we missed the 50th anniversary, or we're going to miss the 50th anniversary of the first Apollo moon landing here in July of 2019. Yep. They're talking about a return to, to the moon in 2024. 
only missed it by four years, but it's a little bit abysmal in my mind that it took us 54 years to get back to the moon. Yeah, no, that's, I think everybody in our business uh, has, shares that opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, the the uh, the encouraging part in my mind is that you know now that you know the political leadership is talking about you know sustainability and developing the resources on the moon. In fact, uh, you know, Vice President Pence has even specifically mentioned uh, the water ice at the lunar poles. Cool, cool. Well, we're starting to run out of time. I have time for one more question for you. So having been in the industry in aerospace and, and now a professor of space resources and your background in physics, I want to ask you, what, what advice would you give to a young college student at the School of Mines? School, by the way, the School of Mines for the listeners is a very technical school. It kind of sounds like people go to there to, to learn how to, to mine coal, but the School of Mines in Golden, Colorado is very technical and very advanced and probably needs to change its name to come up with the times. But anyway, what, what advice would you give uh, your young students? What should they study? What languages, computer languages, should they learn? What, what courses should they take? And, and what are the upcoming jobs in, in, in the future market in aerospace and science? Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll put in a plug for, for our graduate program, Space Resources. Um, I think it, it, you know, it's an emerging new field. Um, that uh, I believe has the the potential uh, to change the world. I talk often about space resources representing uh, the next great economic revolution for humankind. Um, the first two being the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. I think space resources um, ha- has the potential to change human, the, you know, the human situation to the same degree that those. Um, major events in our history have done, um, and the reason being is 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 quite simple. The 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 resources available in just the inner solar system are nearly infinite compared to the resources available on Earth. Maybe it's an avenue where we can, through space exploration, curtail the plundering of the Earth. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. Um, of Amazon, you know, the owner, owner of Amazon and, and the founder of the, the space company Blue Origin talks exactly that. And, you know, I share that vision that space, the use of space resources can absolutely enable us to to continue economic growth uh, while preserving the earth for humans. And, uh, you know, I think that's a that's a goal everybody shares. We want to preserve the earth for humans because, you know, it's almost like we evolved here. I mean, we're so well suited for for life on earth. Um, well, I forgot to ask you, there's an international treaty that preserves the Antarctic uh, for, as a research point for everyone and uh, mining and, and digging for oil and, and other natural resources in the Antarctic is prohibited by international treaty, as I understand it. What about a space treaty? I forgot to follow up with you on mining the moon. Can we? Yeah, do there, that? there is a the, the, the there's one treaty that's in place um, that uh, was was actually that, that has been signed by you know almost everybody in the world, including the United States, and that's the Outer Space Treaty. It was signed back in the in the '60s, and uh, you know that that treaty says. That uh, that nations can't appropriate space bodies or space real estate as sovereign um, or claim sovereignty over over those bodies. So the Outer Space Treaty um, means that 
you know, the United States can't go to the moon, plant its flag. Five, and claim. Yeah. We planted our flag. We didn't claim it as U- U.S. territory. Um, but but most interpretations of the Outer Space Treaty um, says it does not preclude, you know, utilizing space resources oh, okay. or, or extracting resources from the moon. And uh, the United States, to kind of clarify things, in 2015 passed uh, legislation that that provides property rights over extracted materials in space. Um, so a U.S. company or a U.S. entity can own resources that are removed or extracted from the moon. Oh, okay. Uh, you just can't own the, the moon itself or portions of the moon. All right. So let's get the, back to the final question about... Uh, direction to young engineers and scientists about job opportunities and what they should be studying, and we'll wrap it up. Yeah. So, so, so to me, any any if you're if you're in a science, hard science field or engineering, um, you've, you're going to have great job prospects, um, and uh, and excellent starting sal- salaries. I think there's actually a shortage of. Scientists and engineers in this country. Um, jobs more that jobs be replaced than there are. by robots anytime soon. Maybe Amazon yeah. will have robots lifting boxes, but no, you know, young scientists with master's degrees in, in physics and engineering are going to be irreplaceable. Yeah, somebody's got to design those robots. <laughs> yeah, that too. And program them, right? So, so, you know, anything in the STEM field... You know, I, I, I love space and I love space resources. I think those are, are great fields um, that are exciting and, and are going to be expanding. But but pretty much anything in, in STEM is is a great career choice. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we have to bring the show to a close. We run out of time. It's been a delight having you on the show and telling us about your career and you know, all the things that we discussed. It's been great. Thank you, George. Thank you. Say, so tell the listeners how to contact you if they wish. Especially young students. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at George underscore Sowers. Okay. Um, you can uh, contact me at the Colorado School of Mines at uh, gsowers at mines.edu. Great. Folks, I hope you enjoyed our discussion with Dr. Sowers. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>